Okay, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're doing so a little quieter. How's the sound? All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to Matthew chapter 8. As we get started this morning, we are in Matthew 8, Mark 4, and Luke 8. We will move on to our next incident, which is in also Matthew 8. Uh, it moves on to Mark 5 uh, and Luke 8 in uh, episode 29. We almost wrapped up 28, and probably within about two minutes here this morning, we can get the last details on that and proceed to the next event. Before we begin any of this, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we commit to you all things that take place on this day, including uh, we thank you for the ladies' prayer meeting, which is just complete, for this Bible class now set before us, and for a time of fellowship afterwards, and for all things that are done. If you delay long enough in sending your son, then this evening we anticipate double portion. We get uh, yet again another prayer meeting and, and another Bible class, and we just thank you for all the ways that you pour forth your mercy in our lives. We commit to you now this study, asking for distractions to be set aside and for eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, as far as the map work is concerned, we can really zoom these in here on the screen anyway. Um, this is the same map that you have on paper, uh, the uh, Palestine in the time of Jesus, and it's color-coded into the various particular regions, which is good to understand because it's not as if uh, there's one central Jewish area. In fact, there's two dominant Jewish areas with other Jewish populations scattered in other regions. Uh, they're colored on your map, that orangish, reddish, burnt orange kind of color around Judea and Samaria, uh, although Jerusalem was really the, the center pla uh, centerpiece of Jewish population. And then the purplish region up there, uh, the Galilean region. Uh, the other realms, uh, Phoenicia was largely Greek, uh, Golanitis was primarily Greek, uh, Decapolis was really uh, a blend. Uh, those, those cities were politically Greek cities, but they uh, comprised of Latin, uh, you know, Romans and, and Greek and, and other Gentile peoples and so forth. The Prean region you also see there in purple. So it's fairly well scattered. A lot of that was the consequences of the Assyrians and their policy of scattering different people around, planting them in different places. That's how the Samaritans ended up in Samaria. And uh, the idea that you have there. So when he crosses the Sea of Galilee and he's over on the east side, he's in regions that still have Jewish populations, but they are the regions themselves are not predominantly Jewish. And that's one thing we're going to recognize. I mean, clearly here, when he gets to the other side and there's, there's herds of swine, for example, well, that's not Jewish. Swine, uh, you know, pigs are unclean animals, and, and if those are Jewish people her, uh, herding them, then they're not observant Jews. They're, they're not, you know, uh, uh, practicing their, their faith, that is, uh, following the law of Moses and the principles of the Word of God that they were under. And so it's, it's in all likelihood that these are Gentiles that he's dealing with here in this particular region, or at the very least, they're, they're heretical Jews that are dealing with the swine there. So anyway, that's a bit of the geography I wanted to highlight. Also, you'll notice... Two cities here, Gadara and Gergesa, or Gergesa. There would be a third one that could be plotted there, which is Garasa. And we'll be talking about spelling differences this morning between Gadara, Gergesa, and Garasa. Uh, all three of those, only two of them you actually see on your map. Now, if it comes down to a question between Gadara and Gergasa, uh, which one do you think it was where the swine plunged into the sea? See, uh, Gadara seems rather inland, doesn't it? <laughs> Gadara's off the coast quite a bit, up on that Yarmouk River, uh, river valley, whereas opposed to Gergesa is right there on the coast itself and much more likely to be where uh, uh, the herd would, would plunge into the sea. And likewise, uh, Garasa is also in that coastal area there, just south of uh, Gergesa. So those are the things that we deal with when we talk about spelling differences, text questions, and the uh, things that we struggle with in text criticism. All right, we'll get the last of the slideshow going here from last week, Calming of the Sea. 
We dealt with slipping away in the uh, nature of how the Lord uh, didn't even leave the boat following the end of his Bible class. The crowds and the would-be followers were becoming distractions, all wanting to flock after him, wanting to become a part of what he had going on. But in some cases, they had other things also that uh, they didn't want to be distracted from the buying and selling of real estate or other family considerations that they had. Um, he wanted to go over to the other side, and we did a little bit of the geography study on those regions there, uh, Golanitis and uh, Decapolis and those regions. Secondly, we talked about the storm. So we started off with point one was slipping away, point two is storming away, and uh, described the nature of this storm and how the storm itself was a physical weather phenomena, and it was clearly something that they were going through as an external danger. Uh, but the storm itself was also a metaphor for the turmoil within their own thinking, within their own soul, their own lack of faith, and so forth. And so when he says, peace be still, he's speaking both to that external storm that's raging and, and causing winds and waves and the boat to rock and water to swamp the boat and so forth. But when he says, peace be still, he's also speaking to them in their soul and the turmoil that's within them in the lack of, of faith. The uh, rebuke when he says, oh, you of little faith, oligopistos is the adjective there. And it's it's a neat compound adjective that combines oligos, little, and pistos, faith. And when they're called oligopistos or oligopistoi, that's a pretty descriptive adjective for them. Thirdly, we looked at sleeping away. While the storm was raging, he was sleeping and uh, observe principles of his own personal exhaustion. And, and how many hours does he teach when he gets in a boat and just goes on and on. How long did it take to teach those parables? Uh, to teach not only the parables that he taught in public, but also to give the secondary explanations in, in more of a private uh, way to the twelve, to the disciples, those that were privileged to receive greater in-depth teaching. And so uh, the aspect of his need for sleep, catching it when he could and where he could, was uh, an interesting observation. Under point four, they cried out, save us. And really, it was their language of salvation and their need, uh, their, their fear of the danger was pretty descriptive as well. Save us, we are perishing, and don't you care? And the, the accusation there, you can always tell beyond, I mean, there's, there's questions and then there's questions. And there's, there's questions that are obviously designed for information where, where you just simply don't know or you want to learn more, and so you're asking a question that's, kind of an informative question, but then there's questions that are accusatory, and that's one of these uh, accusatory questions. It's kind of like, you know, you can say a question like, uh, where were you yesterday? That could be an informative type of question if you're just curious, but it could also be accusatory if you're suspicious by nature and you think the person might have been somewhere, uh, you know, they should have been. You can look at them and say, well, where were you last night kind of thing and and in the way that you ask that question it's pretty accusatory <laughs> it's pretty confrontational and so when they say don't you care that's that's not just a general informative type question uh it's accusatory and it's it's the the fact is saying you don't care is what they're saying you don't care we're going to die and you don't care because you're only thinking about yourself right in any event, that's their uh, statement. Under point five, we studied silencing the tempest. And uh, when he does say, peace be still, as we've mentioned, he was speaking not only to the winds, but also to them, they and their own personal tempest. And the principles I think here are, are interesting. Little or absent faith had left the disciples afraid. How much faith do we have? Is faith something that we can quantify? Can we, well, we, obviously we can't put it in a test tube and measure the, you know, the, 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 the cubic centimeters of faith. So you can't exactly say, well, I have 12 cc's of faith or you have whatever. But nevertheless, the scriptures do describe varying amounts and they describe varying potencies. The, the phrase weak in faith is attested in the, in the scripture. So is the phrase strong in faith. Now, we understand that you're either in fellowship or you're out of fellowship. That's an absolute. You're either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. That's an absolute. But in that absolute of being in fellowship and in that absolute of walking in the light, there is the, the, the degrees of faith. That is the intensity or the, what Corinthians calls the proportion of faith. 
And so um, we obviously want to be strong in faith. That happens as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a, it is a mark of maturity, but beyond that, it's also a mark of, of uh, devotion. It's a mark of devotion. So we'll have some of those things coming up as well in terms, because unfortunately, that's the realm where charismatics and other believers, they really try to define the Christian faith is that the, the more fervently you hold to something, is, uh, the more devoutly you, you obey. And they, they, they try to quantify the Christian way of life based on your dedication and your devotion and so forth. And while that's flawed, on the surface, there is a value to understanding the distinction between strong in faith, weak in faith, much faith, little faith. The disciples here were of little faith, meaning they're not applying doctrine. They're not using the word of God. And so he calls them here oligopistos, or in plural, oligopistoi, you of little faith. And it left them afraid. Failure to fear the Lord led to the carnal fear. Remember, there's two kinds of fear. We want to have the proper fear of the Lord, which is the awe, the reverence, the trembling before him. And if you have that effectively, then it minimizes that other fear, that human fear, the carnal fear that can creep up. Of course, he was speaking to the weather condition. Interesting how that storm ended. I mean, just like that, the storm was over. Because, well, why? Well, they'd failed the test. No point in those winds raging anymore. The test is over. They failed. They'll have to uh, learn by other means. And so the circumstantial conditions for the test were brought to an end. I think if we target our prayer life more consistently with his will, and we target the, circumstance, the purpose for the circumstantial conditions, remember, our Father does nothing for no purpose. He does everything according to the counsel of his will. And so if a test is designed, to, if it has a purpose in view, whether it's a health test or a marriage test, a financial test, whatever, if there's a purpose for that test, or there is, then we can rest confidently that when that purpose is achieved, then those circumstantial conditions will have no more purpose. Those circumstantial conditions can be brought to an end. And so, you know, in terms of a health test, uh, rather than making the first prayer, oh, heal me of this test, no, accomplish the purpose for which this health test is designed to bring about. In other words, teaching me the lessons I'm supposed to learn or building up my faith or whatever it is this health test is supposed to bring about, glorifying Jesus Christ, if that may be it. Then once that purpose is accomplished, the actual circumstantial conditions can then be brought to a close. Also, we pondered whether these were natural winds or spirit beings, and I would encourage you to ponder Psalm 104:4 that his ministers are winds, his servants are a flame of fire, and consider that some things that the world writes off as natural phenomena are actually angelic beings bringing about God's judgment. All right, the last thing then, as we ran out of time, we didn't get the chance to deal with the surprising success, so let's wrap up this surprising success. As we read it here in Matthew chapter 8, um, he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea and it became perfectly calm. We read that in Matthew 8:27. And then the men were amazed. They were amazed. Well, uh, didn't they just ask, Lord, save us? And so he does so. I mean, he stops the storm and everything is back to normal and calm and, and they're amazed. Well, that's what they asked for, wasn't it? When you make a prayer request, are you, are you surprised if that prayer gets answered? Why, why were you asking for such a thing if you didn't really think it was going to happen? See, in Mark 4. Well, okay, so they were amazed, and they said, and here's the expression of their amazement, which they put in verbal form, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And uh, you wonder how much of their Christology do they truly understand in the hypostatic union and the nature of his ministry. What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? It, it communicates that they have an immature understanding of Christology. They, have a, a, uh, they do not have the complete picture and appreciation for who the Christ ultimately is. In Mark 4... They, uh, after it becomes perfectly calm, he turns to them, he says to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? That's why I call it little or absent. 
Why is it that you have, or how is it that you have no faith? Where does faith come from? And why do they have none, or very little? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's right. So if they are deficient in their faith, where are they going to fill up? Where are they going to obtain more? How are they going to strengthen that? Now, yes, faith is a fruit of the Spirit, but beyond that, the faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So if you're in fellowship, if you are walking in the light, if you are abiding in the Word, then your faith levels are increased. Uh, realizing here from Mark 4.40, there's no good answers to this. You're better off just leaving those questions rhetorical, leaving them unanswered, uh, because the uh, the actual answers are kind of uh, bad. Well, you know, if you if you're didn't truly sit down and answer, why are you afraid? Well, I'm afraid because I'm not applying the word of God, and I'm 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 sparking this fear based on my own carnality, and I'm selfish, and and <laughs> well, yeah, if you if you really want to give the answer there, it's not very uh, flattering. So they then became very much afraid. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So it becomes clear that they were wrestling with him, not only in his uh, ministry, but even in his being. And then finally, Luke 6, the, um, I'm sorry, Luke 8. It's reflected in all three of these gospel records. After, uh, he says, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and, sur- and surging waves. And they stopped and became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They uh, were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. All right, so they had uh, the surprising success. Stunned that, the, uh, that, that uh, even though they told him, Do something. What were they expecting him to do? Clearly, from what they stated after the fact, they didn't expect that he could do anything. They didn't expect that, that he would be able to do anything. That What kind of a man could stop the waves? And here he does so. So, failure in the application led to additional learning. You know, God is so gracious, he allows us to learn lessons even when we fail. There's still lessons to learn. There are still lessons to learn. Failure in the application led to additional learning. They had an opportunity to learn more about Christ, about his being, about his essence, his nature. What kind of man is this? Well, they had to answer that question. They had to ponder it. They could throw it around between themselves, but ultimately they had to come to answer that question, which is the question everybody has to answer. What think ye of Christ? Unbelievers have to have to. Either accept that he's the, the sacrifice on their behalf and believe in Christ unto salvation, or they have to reject it. Likewise, even believers, even once we're past that point of salvation, we still have to come to that question, who is Christ, in, in, the, in the fullness of it, to realize he's the head of the church. He's the prototype of, of God's plan and program for our Christian walk. And we need to be an imitator of Christ, which means we need to take up our cross and follow him, which means we need to have the sacrificial love towards one another. Believers must come to that decision. But I like the way that we have those opportunities to learn. We can learn from our victories. We can learn from our mistakes. Uh, The idea of failing a test, the idea of failing a test can crush believers. You can get discouraged and say, oh, I'll never grow up. Why do I keep failing and I've got this besetting sin or I've got this, this uh, uh, temptation and I'm always giving into it. I, I never seem to have any victory in my, in my walk. And why am I such a loser? And, and you can use guilt, the devil can use guilt to, to just crush you and, and knock you down and convince you that it's just not even worth trying. Why bother? Because you're such a pathetic loser, it's not even worth trying even to stay in fellowship anymore. Well, that's what the adversary would have you believe. But there are lessons to be learned through the mistakes, through the failures, to continue to, to grow. And you'll notice that the answer here is learning about him. And uh, if you fail 999 times, well, maybe the thousandth time is the charm. How many times does it take? Because he's got enough grace to uh, not give up on us. And that's, uh, that's a real blessing. Secondly, little or absent faith requires a greater understanding and appreciation for God's sovereignty. 
Ultimately, the believer with a small faith has a small appreciation for God's essence. Because if your God was big enough, (laughs) you wouldn't be worried about this problem. Little or absent faith requires a greater understanding and appreciation for God's sovereignty. You could really substitute all of God's essence and attributes in there, for not just sovereignty, but his omnipotence. I mean, if, if, you, if you really think that God is so small that he can't handle that storm, well, then you've got a diminished appreciation for his omnipotence. Somehow you've got it in your mind that the storm is greater than his omnipotence. And so as a result, your faith is weak and, and, and you see no hope. You see no answers. You're looking at a test and say, you know what, there's, there's no answer to this test. The only, there's, the only answer to this test is just failure and crash and burn and, and, and misery when you're not using the Word of God. It, uh, my old pastor used to draw it out this way. He used to draw it out where... Uh, let me switch over here to manual mode. He used to draw it out this way. He talked about how you got this great big problem and you got this little tiny God. Right? But the answer is to look at this and say, wait a minute. Is that the God whose thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are his ways our ways? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his thoughts higher than our thoughts and his ways higher than our ways. Is this the God who spoke and the universe sprang into being? Is this the God who redeemed me? And so the more you focus on who he is and you start getting a bigger and bigger and bigger God. What happens to your problem? Yeah. Then all of a sudden you get this smaller and smaller and tiny little problem. Just put a dinky little pea in there. Okay. But the key is, is learning about his essence, learning about his nature, learning about his personality would encourage a review of what we did in basic doctrinal studies when we went through not just his essence, but his personality and his character. He is a person, and as a person, he has personality. And that's where you learn not only what he is, what he is like, but who he is. becomes a, a significant aspect of growth. All right. Back to PowerPoint. So little or absent faith requires a greater understanding and appreciation for God's sovereignty. That's why we say you can't go through the essence box too many times. I don't care if, if you got saved, uh, you know, uh, back in the 30s and you're, you're approaching 70 years of, of, of Christian walk. You can go through the, the essence of God tomorrow and learn things you never knew before. Learn develop, uh, depths of, of, his, of his essence and his attributes and his power in things that you never picked up before. It's infinite. How can we ever get so prideful and say, oh, I don't need basics anymore? Really? You have an exhaustive, infinite, complete, total understanding of God's essence? That's, that's impressive. None of us do. Finally, this understanding and appreciation is developed through a more intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This understanding and appreciation, they had this opportunity to learn who he is. They walked with him, they sailed with him, they ate with him, they, they traveled with him. You and I do the same thing. Not, not in physical boats, but in the course of our Christian walk, because he's the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He indwells each one of us. We abide in him and he in us. And so we are true disciples. So this understanding and appreciation, what's that? Well, for God's sovereignty, for God's essence and nature and being. It is developed through a more intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, the idea of learning the Scriptures is not just the accumulation of facts, not just the, the, the stockpiling of gnosis to where we're walking Bible encyclopedias. It's not knowing about the person, it's knowing the person. Huge difference. If you know about somebody, you can know all kinds of things about somebody, and, and not even know them at all. All right. I mean, when it comes down to it, I mean, you can know, uh, you know, uh, how tall they are. They're, you know, six feet tall. They're 225 pounds. They were born in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. They have red hair. They uh, went to school at the University of Michigan. They, uh, they, I mean, you can know all kinds of things about a person reading a biography or whatever. But do you actually know them? 
Do you know that person? How they think? How they, uh, how they respond under testing? How they apply the Word of God themselves? Do you know that person? It's a huge difference. And this is what they needed to develop. And this, in all three of these Gospels, we see that question that they ask, who is this or what kind of man is this? The, the, the statement being that they needed to have a greater understanding of, of this Lord that they were following, the Lord that they were worshiping, God himself in the flesh. And fortunately, they do. <laughs> By the time we get to the New Testament, you can read even knucklehead Peter. When you read First and Second Peter, you realize, you know what? We walked with him. We saw him. We heard from him. We learned from him. We came to know him. And now, in, in the course of their walk, uh, they get to imitate him, and they will ultimately die. Each of these apostles will be martyred. Other than John, every uh, apostle becomes martyred in the course of their apostolic ministry. Okay, so there's their success. All right. We move on. Once they get to the other side, there's demons over there. So episode 29 in the Galilean ministry. The healing of the Gadarene demoniac. Demoniacs. Were there one? Were there two? Well, there were two. As far as Mark and Luke are concerned, though, they only get wrapped up in the one. They record the incident and they, they focus in on Legion. But there was actually a second demoniac there, a sidekick to Legion, that uh, neither Mark nor Luke cared to uh, mention. Matthew made mention of them, however, and so we understand the uh, reality that there were two demoniacs there in the region. All right, the text for this continues on in Matthew 8, continues on in Luke 8. Uh, and it does continue on in Mark, but it crosses from chapter 4 into chapter 5. So the text that you see on the screen is the text that immediately follows the calming of the sea. So Matthew 8, 28 through 34, fairly short section there, just seven verses long. Is that right? 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, yeah, seven verses. Then uh, Mark 5, 20 verses. That's the longest of the sections, 1 through 20. And then Luke 8. 26 through 39, a 14-verse stretch there. So let's look at them. I'll read the shortest one first. That's Matthew. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And when they cried out, say, and they cried out, saying, "What business do we have with each other, son of God?" Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, and we know you are, uh, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. Plural. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. All right, so there's the record of Matthew. That's the shortest of them. Mark is 20 verses long, and Luke uh, is approaching that, is uh, 14 verses long. Let's do Luke first, and then we'll end up in Matthew. How about that? Luke 8. We'll do Luke first, then we'll end up in Mark. Excuse me. And we'll, uh, we'll use Mark as our base text, I think, because it's the longest and has the most details. We'll use that as our basic text this morning. Luke 8, starting in verse 26. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And by the way, you may have different spellings or different words here, depending if you're reading an NIV or you're reading a New King James or a King James um, you probably you might have had Gerasenes or Gergesenes in in Matthew, and you'll have Gadarenes in uh, in Mark and Luke, depending depending on which English text you're reading. And I'll spell all that for you in, in nauseating detail here shortly. When he came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who had possessed who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. 
Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus said to him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Is there anybody here reading a living Bible or the message or uh, the contemporary English version or English standard version? Any of those touchy-feely 21st century fourth grade reading level Bibles? Okay, I guess not. There's some amusing. No, seriously, these, these all, there's a whole flood of them out there these days. Contemporary English, Good News Translation, um, the, uh, the message, the, the, the Peterson version there, there. There's a flood of them, and they're starting to get written at more and more third grade, fourth grade level, as opposed to uh, New American Standards at the 11th grade reading level, and uh, New King James, I think, is 8th grade, ninth grade reading level. In any event, uh, they, they come up with some pretty interesting names here for, for Legion, <laughs> and that's something else. All right, um, verse 30, Legion for Many demons had entered him. A Roman legion was 6,000 combat troops uh, with a like number, an equal number of auxiliary support personnel. So up to 12,000 Romans serving in a legion, 6,000 combat troops, 6,000 support staff. Then they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss, abusas, and we'll have a lot to say about that today. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Remember, Luke calls the Sea of Galilee a lake. Luke is the Gentile. He's much more traveled. He's seen real seas, and this is not a sea. This is a lake as far as Dr. Luke the Gentile is concerned. When the herdsmen, and here's a good aftermath here, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. See, they're, they're unemployed now at this point. <laughs> Their whole job just drowned, and uh, they rush off to report it. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man with whom, from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. We don't know what his name is. It might even be Bob, for all we know. I'm still looking for Bob in the Bible. Uh, this man, though, we don't know his name, but all of a sudden he's, he's back in his right mind and he got dressed. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well, and all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him, that he might accompany him, but he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. And he becomes a tremendous Gentile witness to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in this region, this Decapolis region or Gerasene region here, he has this opportunity to uh, testify concerning the Gentiles. Remember, he was proclaimed by the nations, we're told, in that First Timothy passage. All right, so there's the record in Luke. Mark is largely similar to Luke. Let's go to Mark 5, but even greater amounts of detail. We've got 20 verses of material in Mark chapter 5. <coughs> and this is where we will spend most of our study. I'm going to give you the outline here in really six points. First of all, we'll start with a harmonization. Are these passages contradictory? Well, if you've been with us through, what's today? Today is our 137th lesson in Life of Christ. Then you will have observed in previous lessons that no, these passages are not contradictory. That when we have diverging details and we have information that differs In the different gospel records, we realize that they are complementary, not contradictory. And that harmonizing them gives us the fullest picture imaginable, which is why this is a Life of Christ series that harmonizes the four gospels and not simply a book study on any one particular gospel record. Remember, of course, that uh, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only Matthew was present on the scene to observe these events. 
Mark learned what he learned, probably through Peter, as all likelihood. He was a companion of Peter for many years. And uh, the writing, the outline of Mark is, uh, the outline of Mark is identical to Peter's outline when he's preaching his gospel sermons in uh, the book of Acts. And so we see Peter's influence in, in, in uh, Mark's gospel. Uh, Pastor Ackman believes that Peter forfeited the right to write a gospel by his um, denial of Christ and so forth and was not permitted to write a gospel, but his student Mark wrote that gospel. Likewise, Paul was uh, forfeit his right to write a gospel, but that's what the gospel of Luke is all about. Luke was a companion of Paul, a student of Paul's for many years, and uh, wrote the gospel of Luke from a Gentile perspective uh, during Paul's Caesarean imprisonment. In any event, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Only Matthew was here to witness these events. Mark and Luke learned their material from secondary sources. All right, Matthew gives the shortest account. It's the subpoint A in your harmonization. Matthew gives the shortest account. He does not name legion and refers to two demoniacs. Matthew likewise does not reference the healed man or men being given speaking ministries to their native region. not in keeping with his purpose. As you might expect, Matthew is presenting Christ the King. He's presenting the fulfillment of Jesus as the, as the Messiah King, presenting the great discourses such as the uh, parables of Matthew 13, such as the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount Olivet Discourse, uh, the ministry of the Jewish King to the Jewish people. In the episodes where he crosses the Sea of Galilee, ministers to Gentiles, he goes out to the Phoenician regions, uh, Matthew is very short in his record of those ministries. Not because he's hiding anything or because he's embarrassed about any of it, but because it's not the driving purpose for his gospel. As under the filling of the Holy Spirit, being led to write the things he writes in the book of Matthew. So it's not consistent. We'd be very surprised to find a detailed account here of this, of this message to the Gentiles or the role of this healed man and things like that. That's not keeping with Matthew's purpose. Secondly, Mark and Luke give lengthier accounts. They both name Legion, Legion, which is... Uh, Interestingly, it's an interesting Greek word study because it, it's borrowing from Latin. Uh, the, the legion was a, was a Roman uh, unit of, of military might. The legion is, I mean, the legions of Rome was what conquered the world in the Roman Empire. And so here where we got the Greek word legion, we're actually borrowing from a Latin um, derivation, like the centurion and other terms that we've studied in the past. So they both name him. I, I like the name Legion. I'm sorry. I don't, I'm not going to go with uh, uh, <laughs> mob. Some of the, uh, I think it's the message or whatever, has mob. When Jesus says, what is your name? And he says mob for uh, we are many or something like that. Or uh, the good news translation which, where his name was Lots. And Jesus says, what is your name? And the man says, I am Lots for there are lots of us inside here. Admittedly, Lots might form a, a uh, sequel to Lot in the Old Testament. If you got Lot in Genesis, then you could have Lots in uh, Mark and Luke. No, I like Legion. Legion's a great name. And Legion is a proper transliteration of the Greek legion. Were there literally 12,000 uh, angels, fallen, uh, demons, I should say? Were there literally 12,000 evil spirits? Not likely that many, but clearly lots. And so uh, the name Legion or Lots or what have you. How many, I mean, how many demons can you fit inside of a human body? How small is a demon? And can they overlap? If they're, if they're, not, if they're not physical beings anyway, then they're not occupying physical space until such time as they possess and animate a, uh, a body. So they can conceivably be layered on top of each other. We'll talk about that here in a little bit because we get actually a fair amount of demonology in this text that uh, launches into more studies beyond what we're going to tackle, but at least they can point us in that direction. They also reference the uh, speaking ministry that the healed man is given, but they only do mention the one. Now, when they do say a man, 
like in Mark 5 here, um, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. It does not say only one man. It just says a man and leaves open, of course, the possibility that there's additional demoniacs. But this is the one that grabs their attention. This is the one that is named. This is the one that is the, the greatest. Con- so if there, were, if there were a second one or a third one or more, it wouldn't really bother Mark or Luke any because this is the one that takes the center stage. This is the one that confronts. This is the one that has the multiple demons. He's the one that's been involved with it the longest Remember, demonism is kind of a coming and going kind of thing where for a season, the demon can go out, comes back, finds it swept in order and brings in seven more, goes out, comes back, brings in seven more. The idea that by the time this guy has all of these, how many of these cycles has he gone through? How many uh, how many opportunities has he had uh, with the the back and forth, the in and out opportunities has he had to. uh, to uh, be healed of this type, type of thing or to find some answers or go, uh, you know, to seek the Lord and, and, and deliverance from these kind of circumstances. All right. So there's Mark and Luke's record. By the way, we're going to talk about the nature of demon possession uh, and how the unbeliever is so susceptible to it and it has no option, no control over it except seeking where the protection can be found which is to become saved which is finding where who are the people that are legitimately protecting against demons now the romans had their superstitions they had their magic spells the greeks had their superstition had their magic spells even the jews had their exorcists and had their superstitions and their spells which they claimed they got from solomon and the different incantations that they would recite and so forth but if there's a legitimate prophet of the lord god who is casting out demons and news of that is spreading throughout the land, then during uh, one of their moments of sanity, once the demons have flushed out, here's an unbeliever who has an opportunity to, uh, to seek out that kind of protection. Thirdly, Mark and Luke are not untruthful when they emphasize the, the demoniac named Legion. So it's not a it's not a lie and it's not untruthful and it's not a contradiction. They're not untruthful when they emphasize the demoniac named Legion. Their reference to one demoniac never states or infers that he was the only one. Their reference to one demoniac never states or infers that he was the only one. He's simply the one cited in their record. A lot of folks uh them skeptics and Bible haters and so forth, they'll use this and say, see, here's a contradiction. You can't trust what the Bible says. But what they're doing is they're themselves, they, they have to insert the word only into Mark 5 and in Luke 8, they have to put the word only in there in order for it to be a contradiction. If the text said he was encountered by only one demoniac, not two, well then yes, that would be a contradiction with what Matthew said because Matthew said there were two. Illustration. A newspaper story. This is all true, by the way. A newspaper story summarizing a Texas Longhorn football game refers to only four Longhorns by name. You open up your newspaper, you read the story, and it says, ah, you know what, there was a football game uh, last Friday between the Longhorns and the Aggies, and you start reading the details. Might be a little sad story for certain people. Might be a happy story for other people, I don't know. And as you read through the story from beginning to end, like from, you know, verse 1 to verse 20, you get through that whole story and only four Longhorns were named. So what do you assume? They were the only four players on the field? No, because, because just because it mentioned four by name doesn't exclude additional players. And then you turn to the box score and you find a total of 14 players, the four that were mentioned by name in the story, and then 10 more beyond that. There were 14 Longhorns mentioned by name in the box scores. That is, they accumulated statistics, passing yards, rushing yards, receptions, um, punt returns, uh, kicking, things like that. The things that show up as statistics in the box score. So there's 10 more that are named. There's 14 total in the box score. 
Were those the only 14 on the field? Well, no. If you know how football works, there's 11 on offense. There's 11 on defense. Plus, you've got special teams and uh, kicking and returns and things like that. There's additional players that were on the field that day. The team roster of active players for that same game lists a total of 127 players. Now, did all 127 of them get on the field? No, no. There's several that don't make, make it to the field, but they're ready in case you know somebody gets hurt and they have to rush out there. But, um, but even it's interesting that only 14 had statistics in the box scores. And you know there were more than that on the field, but quite a few, you know, they're on the field, they just don't get statistics. Linemen don't get statistics when they're just, you know, blocking for the quarterback. So they don't show up in the box score, but they're, clearly they're on the field. So are these sources contradictory? Can we say that the story must be wrong because it only names four, or the box score must be wrong because it names 14, or the, uh, the, the team roster must be completely out of whack because it lists 127 names, and most of those guys didn't do anything. No, they're not wrong, and they're not contradictory, they're complementary, and you get the fullest picture when you synthesize or harmonize the details from all the different accounts. And so, yes, there were two demoniacs present, but one of them, though, was the was the dominant one. One of them was the one that was the confrontational one here with uh, the legion of demons within him. All right, now, secondly, let's look at this region, and I'm going to put these all up side by side. What do we call this place? The Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, the Gergesenes, who were these guys? The country of, and in, in every case, we're talking about a proper noun that is derived from the inhabitants. A noun that's derived from the inhabitants. And so, the region of the Austinites. Well, what's that? Well, that's Austin. It's the... The city and the inhabitants of the city are called Austinites or Seattleites if you're from Seattle or maniacs if you're from Maine or whatever you are, all right? I had a roommate from Maine when I was in the Army. He was an interesting guy. All right. Well, here's your three different terms. You can just list them under A, B, and C. Gadarenes, Gerasenes, Gergesenes. There's a fourth one, too, you'll get here in a moment. And also, when you... Take a look at the scripture references. They're identical. In other words, Matthew 8:28, Mark 5:1, Luke 8:26 and 37. And you have the identical scripture passages for all three terms. Because it depends on which version you're looking at. I can pick up a English Bible and find Gadarenes at Matthew 8:28. I can pick up a different English Bible and find Gerasenes in Matthew 8.28, or I can find Gergesenes in Matthew 8.28. Probably in this room, I've got Gergesenes in this room in Matthew 8.28, because the New King James prefers the Masoretic text, I mean the uh, majority text. Uh, likewise, even though the New American Standard has Gerasenes in uh, Mark and Luke, there are other Bibles that will have Gadarenes in Mark and Luke. But all three terms are used in all three places, depending on which manuscripts you're looking at. And that's what we want to highlight here this morning. This is part of a text criticism exercise. And thankfully, when you examine the 5,000-odd-some-odd manuscripts that are in existence from the New Testament, the, the high majority of all variants, some 98% of all variants are like this one. There are matters of spelling. There are matters of, of um, uh, like, is it the pool of Bethzatha, the pool of Bethsaida, the pool of Bethesda. There are matters of spelling and there are matters of, of, uh, of, of some note, but not matters that are going to overturn a doctrinal question. See, the idea of any doctrine hinging on a text variant is, is anathema. There is no doctrine of the faith that depends on any text variant. And whatever Greek manuscripts you look at, if you are a literal interpretationist, you will come to the pre-tribulational, premillennial, dispensational understanding of the scriptures. And it doesn't matter which Greek manuscripts you're looking at. They're not dependent upon the manuscripts to get you there. All right. So in terms of, and I'll just highlight it for you here. If you're reading a New American Standard Bible... In the English, then that's going to come, typically, it's going to come from the critical text. 
and you spot, I don't have my uh, highlighters here, but the CR, this critical text, is uh, tends to be the, the Greek Bible that the New American Standard prefers. And so uh, in Matthew 8.28, because the critical text has Gadarenes, that's uh, what you're going to find in your New American Standard. Uh, however, Matthew 8.28 in the Masoretic text, I'm sorry, the majority text right there, see that M? In that majority text has Gergesenes. And so if you're sitting here this morning with a New King James Bible or a King James Bible, for example, you will likely have Gergesenes in uh, Matthew 8.28. So by spotting the critical text, by spotting the uh, majority text in the different references, you can pretty well tell, not in every case, there are, there are times where New American Standard departs from the critical text and it accepts the reading of the, of the majority text. And a, and a lot of times, too, it'll put it in a footnote. One of the greatest things that bugs me to death is when uh, there's, a, there's a crowd of people out there who hate the critical text. And they, a lot of times they're the same people who hate anything that's not King James. Uh, but they hate the critical text and they act as if somehow... If you read a New American Standard Bible, you're perpetuating the Alexandrian cult and that you are trying to hide things from the scriptures. You're trying to deny the deity of Christ or you're trying to come up with some other weird, obscure doctrine of Satan, which is, uh, of course, insane. None of us are doing that. And if we're hiding things, it's kind of awkward. Why are we hiding things while at the same time putting footnotes in to show you the, the other views? You know, if we really want to hide stuff, um, we, we wouldn't put the alternate readings in footnotes. We would just act like there are no alternate readings and this is the Bible and deal with it. See, So no one's really trying to hide anything on either side, if you're a majority text person or if you're a, a critical text person. These other things may not mean a whole lot to you. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole string of abbreviations after, for instance, gatherings. Let's just take that first one. Gatherings comes from the Greek, gatherinos, number 1046 in the Strong's Index. And uh, by the way, there's no typo on that screen, um, at least with respect to the Strong's numbers. Uh, Strong gave the same number, 1086. He gave the same number to two different Greek words, to Gerasenos and Gergesenos. He assigned both of those the number 1086. And so even though they're different terms, Gerasenes and Gergesenes, as far as Strong's was concerned, he just gave them the same number and moved on from there. But let's take that first one, Gadarenes. Who are these gatherings? Well, it appears in Matthew 8.28, at least according to the following manuscripts, and that's where the abbreviations come in, the capital B and the capital C with a star. Uh, those manuscripts, if you're familiar at all with the manuscripts of the New Testament, uh, the, the capital B stands for, uh, it's the symbol for Codex uh, Vaticanus. That's the, the, uh, the manuscript, uh, one of the earliest of all the Uncial manuscripts, a 4th century uh, Uncial manuscript that's uh, called Codex Vaticanus, a tremendous uh, manuscript that is in one of the earliest ones that we have. Likewise, uh, the C, but that one has a star, and it's interesting because that means that that one originally read Gadarenes, but then it was later, by a scribe in a subsequent century, it was later changed by a subsequent scribe. So Gadarenes, as you're reading there in Matthew 8.28, according to Codex Vaticanus, according to uh, Ephraimi, which is C right there, uh, and then uh, the critical text, the Nestle land, the UBS 4, and so forth. Uh, Gadarenes, though, is also found in Mark 5.1, according to some of these other manuscripts. Alexandrinus is capital A. And um, some other ones there. We're going to probably at some point, not on a Wednesday morning, but probably maybe on a Sunday night or something in a ministry workshop, we're going to actually take the time. It, it could take two or three Sundays to do it, but to actually go through and describe what all of these manuscripts are, how they were found, what they what they are, what they do, what they mean, how how we use them to put together Greek New Testaments, how we use them to put together uh, our Bible studies. And so it might be, uh, might be worthwhile. What, what do we mean by this uh, F13 here? What is family 13? What are those uh, minuscule manuscripts all about? And, of course, the majority text. Well, where would that come from? Who made it the majority? 
and uh, the Syriac translations. Why are those important? Who cares about Syriac? I want to know what the Greek text says. Okay. Well, it becomes important because the Syriac was a translation early enough that it was made before some of these other mistakes crept into some of the Greek texts. And so by looking at how it was translated into Syriac, you get a better idea of what the Greek must have been that it was translated from. Because it comes in many cases earlier than some of the later Greek manuscripts. Likewise, if you're looking at the Latin manuscripts or you're looking at uh, the Coptic manuscripts. And you've got uh, two forms. You've got the Sahidic Coptic right there by S-A and you've got the Boharic right there by the B-O uh, two different forms of Coptic manuscripts. So there's a lot of work to do in that. And uh, at a point where uh, I'm ready to teach a class like that, I think it would be very fruitful for a lot of folks in, uh, in uh, just understanding the manuscripts themselves, how we do the Bible studies. How do we know, you know, when an expert stands up and says, well, in the original manuscripts, this is what it says. Well, that can sound really impressive, but if you want to learn, what, what does he mean by original manuscripts? What does he mean by in the, in the Greek, which, in the Greek of which manuscript? How do you, you know, how do you determine which Greek? And, and in these cases, it's, uh, it's more of a spelling or a, a technical, I mean, I, to, to, to be honest, I don't care. <laughs> Just like with Bethsaida, Bethesda, Bethzatha, you know what, I, to me... I could care less what the name of that pool was. There was a man there that needed to be healed. Christ healed him. It sparked a, a Sabbath controversy. And there's doctrine to be taught there. Um, and the rest. Of, so does my, uh, I hope my flippant attitude doesn't bother you any. Because it does, it's not a denial of the fact that all scripture is God breathed and profitable. But it means that where those, those questions remain, I can be relaxed about it and let the question remain. And not be so dogmatic about it that I'm going to insist that it's the Gadarenes. And if you're a Gerasene person, forget it. I'm not going to fellowship with you for the rest of my life. Because it's Gadarenes, not Gerasenes. Right? Some people will part fellowship over a text variant. And I find that insane. Absolutely insane. If you want one more uh, wild, bizarre illustration... You, you might call them the Gazarenes, because there's a manuscript that has that spelling, Gazarenes. As a matter of fact, it's Sinaiticus that has that reading prior to it being corrected by later scribes. Matthew 8.28 has Gazarenes, interesting spelling. What was this Garasa place? Garasa was one of the leading cities of Decapolis. Largely autonomous, having trading relations with the Nabataeans to the south. It was a prominent Gentile city. One of the leading cities of the Decapolis. On your map there, Garasa, Gadara, spelling distinction. You want to call it Gergesenes? One of the leading cities of Decapolis, largely autonomous, having trading relations with the Nabataeans to the south. They really didn't deal much with those Jews across the Jordan River. Why? What do they have to offer? They certainly weren't going to be uh, pork customers. <laughs> so your trading there is going to be a little bit limited. And when you've got the Nabataeans to the south willing to trade with you, well, then there's a great market. Trade with them. All right, we'll come back in two weeks. No class next week. Uh, ladies can still meet for prayer, but I will be in Dallas, so there will not be a class next week. We will come back in two weeks. And study the demoniacs. Interesting what the demoniacs were afraid of compared to what the people were afraid of. <laughs> they were both afraid of Jesus, but for different reasons. The demons didn't want to be confined in the abyss. And they didn't want to be banished from, from uh, corporal bodies. Even if they had to be pig bodies, they at least wanted to be living bodies with blood. So uh, we'll talk about what the demons were afraid of. But then after the demons were gone, what were the people afraid of? The inhabitants of this region that wanted, that showed him the door and said, you know, go through it. <laughs> Get out of here. All right, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this study. Thank you, Father, for men that have poured their lives into examining 
minuscule, tiny little details on, in manuscripts and have worked to uh, provide for us the blessings we have today of having uh, Hebrew Old Testaments and Greek New Testaments and the tools to be able to study them in the original languages. Father, we thank you for the heritage that we have and also for the obligation we have in our day to uh, continue on in the study, continue on in the in the uh, process of proclaiming the truth of your word to a lost and dying world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.